Coming up next, Upstate's Health Link on air. On this week's show, we discuss the after effects of polio, post-polio syndrome. It's a gradual thing. It's not acute like the original polio was. It's slowly progressive over years, but they do get new weakness again. Plus, we'll talk with a polio survivor. I made a miraculous recovery, but I feel that the care that I received at Upstate initially and over time through my physicians made an incredible difference. And we'll talk to a Wikipedian in residence for Consumer Reports about getting medical information online. So there is a Wikipedia community. They meet together in the Wikipedia project and discuss how information can be delivered to people. Our checkup from the neck up and a selection from our healing muse. And that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, a Wikipedian in residence gives us the lowdown on getting the most reliable medical information online. Plus, with the Zika virus on everyone's mind, we take a look back at the polio epidemic that hit our country in the 1950s with a personal story. But first, a closer look at polio's after effects, post-polio syndrome. The Centers for Disease Control and its international partners have made significant progress in eliminating polio worldwide over the past 26 years. The number of worldwide polio cases has fallen from an estimated 350,000 in 1988 to only 407 in 2013. That's a decline of more than 99% in reported cases. But that was not so in the 1950s in this country. And today there are individuals still feeling the effects of their bout with this powerful disease. It's been called post-polio syndrome, and here to tell us more about it is Dr. Burke Jubelt. He's professor of neurology as well as professor of microbiology, immunology, and neuroscience at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Jubelt. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Linda. Help us understand, put this in context, give us a sense of polio, kind of the history of where where it started, what we know about it. As far as we know, it actually occurred in ancient times. There, they used to make, uh, you know, stone pictures, pictures in stone, and there are pictures of people who had like a, um, a, a small limb on one side of the body, small leg, uh, that was atrophied and and never developed, and that's what you'd see in the old cases way back then of infantile paralysis, which. The disease was like infantile paralysis up until we started having epidemics in the 18, late 1800s. Um, and when the epidemics <clears throat> hit, did they hit everywhere, I mean, worldwide, or was it located in certain areas? And, and when did they, how frequently did they occur? So the epidemic started like around 1840s, 1850s, and then uh, <clears throat> and, and it, it, it could hit different locations around the world. And then in the United States, we started having epidemics in a little bit in the late 1800s, but primarily the 1900s 
um, that, it, that epidemics occurred, and they actually peaked in 1952 in the United States when there were over 21,000 cases of paralytic polio, which is a huge, huge number. Um, and can you just help us un just understand what polio really is? Is it a virus that then strikes, and how is it transmitted? Just briefly. Yeah, so polio, polio is a virus. It was recognized to be a virus in the late 19, or in the early 1900s, like 1908. There were studies where they isolated the virus from uh, people and injected animals, and they were able to reproduce the disease. Um, the virus is part of their three types of polio virus. It's also part of the antivirus group. There are viruses that Coxsackie virus and Echovirus that usually only cause meningitis, but you may have may have heard of those too. Um, so when the virus basically hits, it's transmitted, again, is it orally transmitted? Is it through air transmission? Right. So it, it's primarily transmitted uh, in the gastrointestinal tract and in, in the stool. Um, and so that's how it gets spread from one person to the next. Usually it's little kids who don't wash their hands very well, and they touch silverware and things like that and, and pass it on that way. And that's how the epidemics uh, develop. And the biggest one, as you said, in our country was in the 1950s. And we have currently people today who are alive who have survived that epidemic and who are suffering from this post-polio um, syndrome, which I want to get to in one moment. But help us understand how the vaccine, when it came on the scene, and how it's transformed, because there mm -hmm. have been some new changes as well. Right. I just want to say one other thing about the epidemics, just to explain that. So in ancient times, people were exposed to poliovirus when they were infants, and that's where the term infantile paralysis came from. So there weren't huge epidemics like we had in the 1900s. And um, so what happened is this hygiene improved in the developed countries. People weren't exposed to the virus till they were teenagers or adults. And when you're a teenager or adults, you're much more susceptible to really? disease. To you, the would disease. you would think otherwise, wouldn't yeah. you? Right. But infants, you know, they got exposed shortly after birth, and only a small percentage developed any paralysis. And then as you got older, a huge number became paralyzed. And the other thing is that when you were infants, when they would have disease, it usually only involved one extremity. While with older, um, you know, teenagers and adults, it oftentimes involved three or four extremities. Uh, One of the most famous cases, as we know, is FDR. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> we had both as legs an adult. involved. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, again, the vaccine. So the vaccine. Yep. The first one was... Sock was the sock vaccine, the inactivated poliovirus vaccine, which was started uh, being given in the late in late 1954 in November and December, and then primarily all through 1955, uh, everybody was vaccinated. And did that stem the tide? Markedly decreased mm -hmm. the number. I mean, the number went from, like I mentioned, the 21,000 or so all the way down to we were down to, you know. Uh, less than a thousand cases a year. So it was an enormous breakthrough Correct. scientifically and medically. Correct. But why did the Sabin vaccine then have to be developed? What was the problem with the Salk vaccine? The problem with the Salk vaccine is it didn't provide gastrointestinal immunity, so immunity in your intestines. And because of that, the virus still could be spread from one person to another in the stool. So the Salk vaccine was taken orally, so then it produced immunity in the intestines. 
Oh, you mean the Sabin vaccine? I'm sorry, the yeah, Sabin vaccine. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the oral polio vaccine, the Sabin vaccine. But today we're having an issue. I want to just get to this quickly. There's a change now worldwide. We've obviously, through this, so is the Sabin the one that's being used basically worldwide to suppress polio? Correct, correct. There's, and, um, and the, the oral polio vaccine then was used, like up in the United States, up till 2000. Um, and then other, there, in, recently in this poliovirus vaccine switch, which occurred in April of this year, there's like 155 countries in the world that are using the oral polio vaccine. The United States converted to inactivated polio vaccine in 2000, but all these other countries are still using the oral polio vaccine. So the inactivated is still a third type then? You're saying there was the SOC, the Sabin, and now is there's a new type? Well, there's... There's not a new, t- I have to explain it. Uh, you know, there's three types of poliovirus. And so there's poliovirus type one, two, and three. And so in the oral polio vaccine, all three are mixed together and given, okay? And so what happened is, is because they were still using oral live vaccine, people started getting cases of polio from the vaccine. Oh. That was in the, especially in the 80s and 90s. And 1980s that's what, and 90s. Right, yeah. and that's why people have pushed to um, make this polio vaccine switch, which is a, occurred in April of this year. And what was done is that um, the, the type 1 and type 3 viruses were can, still continued in the vaccine, and the type 2 was dropped out because it turned out it was the type 2 that was causing most of the per- paralytic cases. So now there's even a, a better and more effective vaccine worldwide, and it, this it's it's been almost 99% suppressed, and you right. think that that should really Correct. continue. Yeah. I want to get to post-polio. So what is <laughs> post-polio syndrome? So post-polio syndrome um, is a syndrome that occurs in patients who had had acute polio, usually in childhood or adolescence, and then the, if you look at the time frame, 30 to 40 years after they had their polio, they start getting new symptoms again. So they recover. Some of even played sports and stuff like that when they were, you know, 20 years old or 25. And then when they get to be 60, 50, 60, they start having new symptoms, which are fatigue, pain, and primarily new weakness. Wow. The if weakness ju- comes back. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with neurologist Dr. Burke Jubelt. We're talking about post-polio syndrome. So they become paralyzed again? Well, it's, it's a gradual thing. It's not acute like the original polio was. It's slowly progressive over years. But they do get n- new weakness again. So, um, what, Why? What causes that? Well, what's thought is that it actually, if you... When you were, had your polio, it was important to work hard to try to, you know, correct the weakness, do a lot of exercises, and that actually seemed to work. But what happens later in life, the nerve cells that sent out new sprouts, new nerve sprouts to take over muscles that had lost their nerve input, um, are now dropping out those new, those fibers that they had sent out. They can't maintain all those fibers and nerve fibers. And so when they start dropping out, then they start getting weak again. So in other words, what you've been able to do to kind of counteract the effects of polio as a youngster or as a young adult, basically as you age, the aging process kind of contributes to the fact that you're you're back to almost square one Correct. in terms of the polio? Correct. So basically, who's most likely? I mean, is it every person who's had polio who might get post-polio syndrome? 
It's probably interesting enough. There's a, at least one paper showing it's that people who uh, exercise a lot. Really? Uh, yeah. It's almost counterintuitive, right. isn't it? They, they're over-exercising and later on in life, and that's probably contributing to why they're getting weakness, you know, a new weakness then. Um, so that's we think that's the case, and that's why we try to teach people to use non-fatiguing exercise programs, and there's been several studies showing that that's beneficial. Give me an example of a non-fatiguing exercise protocol. Right. So you have to teach people. You want to strengthen, obviously, the weakened muscles. So you have to teach people to use, like, about 25% of their strength, you know, not that's 100%. Right, and do And then do short-duration exercises with repetitions. So that's what we mean by non-fatiguing exercise program. What happens to these people, though, over time? In other words, you run a clinic now that, that basically addresses mm -hmm. people with post-polio syndrome. Help us understand what you do in terms of recommendations for their lives, and what are the complications that they face? So we do try to teach them how to do these non-fatiguing exercises so that they can strengthen, actually strengthen some of their extremities and yet not make things worse. You know, some people were out there they go see a physical therapist and they get put on an exercise bike and they overdo things and they can hardly walk that day and it takes them a couple of days to recover and that's what you want to prevent. Uh, we don't have any specific, say, medications right now, but like we're in a trial now with a, a medication called IVIG. Um, it's an immunoglobulin. So we're starting to do trials in post-polio patients. What's the thought there? What would that do for, for the patient? One, the thought is that there might, there might be inflammation that's contributing to the problem, and that would stop the inflammation. So bottom line is it is something, and you were not saying, who, who gets it? I mean, is it basically everyone who's had polio, or is it random? Or Oh, you said people who do overact, who've people been very active. People tend to overactive, right, and, and overexercise are more likely to get it. Um, obviously, people, you don't want people doing nothing, because uh, that's not good either, but you got to kind of meet a halfway point. That's so. Do does things like do things like physical therapy or occupational therapy, if under the right guidance, can those be helpful yes, in helping they, people adjust to they that? They can be very helpful in terms of adjusting and and helping them to stabilize and not continuing to get worse. So, in other words, they may have it; that it can't be cured necessarily, but they can live. Um, they can adjust to it and live a uh, basically a normal life. Correct. Correct. So is it the kind of thing that, as I said, at this point, is it? A, it's basically a hopeful, a hopeful picture in terms of people being able to manage this disease. Correct. And you, you know, it'd be interesting for you to come back and tell us a little bit about some of the research you're involved in clinical trials right now. Correct. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this one with IVIG is the main one we're involved in right now. Although we're also uh, looking at growth factors, and and they seem to help in animal models, and so we probably, hopefully. We'll be able to try that eventually in patients. In the little bit of time we have left, just looking at the big picture worldwide, do you see it as a hopeful picture in terms of the suppression and, and conquest of polio, or do you worry about it kind of raising its ugly head again? Yeah. No, I th it's, I'm, I'm really hopeful that we're going to be able to get rid of it totally. But, um, you know, that 
it's hard right now because the areas like Afghanistan and Pakistan are areas that are very remote up in the mountains and it's hard to get to those people to give them a vaccine and most of them won't take vaccine. Right. <laughs> so right. that's the problem. But I th I'm hopefully we'll be able to cure it. Well, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your expertise and this whole historical perspective on polio and now post-polio syndrome. My guest has been Dr. Burke Jubelt. He's professor of neurology as well as professor of microbiology and immunology and neuroscience at Upstate Medical University. Coming up next, we take a look back at the polio epidemic that hit our country in the 1950s with a personal story. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. The Global Polio Eradication Initiative, the largest private-public partnership for health, has reduced polio by 99% worldwide. But that wasn't the case in the 1950s in this country, when polio continued to be a major cause of death and paralysis for children and for others. Here to share her own story with us about her bout with polio and beyond is Janice Flood Nichols. She's a polio survivor and polio eradication activist. Miss Nichols joins us from her home in Lockport, New York, via the telephone. Welcome to you, Miss Nichols. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Janice, help set the stage for us. Where were you? How old were you when you contracted polio? My twin brother Frankie and I were in first grade in DeWitt, New York. Uh, within just a few days, in fall 1953, eight children out of a classroom of 24 children had been diagnosed with paralytic polio. Within 20 days, 13 people in our little suburb had been um, diagnosed with polio, 12 children and one young mom. In the end, three children died, my twin brother Frankie and two sisters. They did not die immediately. They did, died over time, but of complications from polio. It was a terrible, terrible time, not only in our country, but around the globe. Yes, it sounds like it was very frightening. And at that time, there really was nothing that people could do, was there? Well, um, it was just before the 1954 polio vaccine trial. So once we got to the trial and the licensing of the polio vaccine in 1955, we finally had hope. The only thing that could be done when we had our epidemic was gamma globulin, and that's a blood component. And they had found from about two years before that sometimes if they timed a dose of gamma globulin just right, once a person was infected but maybe not showing symptoms yet, or was in an epidemic area but was not infected, they found that sometimes a dose of gamma globulin could either lessen a case of polio or sometimes even prevent the case completely. So there was something that they could do, but not much. And as you said, in your own neighborhood, how many children that you know of actually died from this? Well, it was not my neighborhood. It was my suburb of DeWitt. Okay. Uh, you know, 
and um, three children died. My twin brother died. I was admitted to the hospital on the night that Frankie was buried, and later on that week my mom had a miscarriage. There were two other sisters, um, or two sisters. One, uh, Patty Lunsman, was in my class, and her older sister, Cheryl, also died of polio complications, but not immediately like my twin. My twin only lived 61 hours from the time he was admitted to the hospital and died. Wow. Were children paralyzed? Were you paralyzed? Um, yes, I was, temporarily. But I made uh, a miraculous recovery. I received incredible help at City Hospital in Syracuse, and that was the hospital for communicable diseases at the time. The staff had gone out to the Midwest to receive training on the most up-to-date treatments of polio, which were very drastic than what they used to do. They used to keep people in bed and cast them and splint them in the hopes that they could uh, decrease deformity. But what they did is they just decreased uh, muscle activity. So people ended up more and more deformed with more disability. So they learned in the 1940s that the best thing to do was to get people up and going as soon as possible. So as soon as I woke up, for the first few days I had a very high temperature. They didn't know whether I would live or not. But when I woke up, my heart therapy began. And they used to bring us to a whirlpool room in the hospital where our therapists were oftentimes in the pools with us, moving our legs up and down, up and down. Some kids had to go to long-term rehab facilities. My family had the ability to pay for private daily physical therapy for me. So that's what I received when I was discharged from the hospital. That therapy went on on a daily basis until sometime um, in second grade. And at that point, the, my parents just re-enrolled me with every physical activity that I had um, enjoyed before I contracted polio. My motivation was to put on my ballet slippers. I had started dancing when I was three years old, and I loved to dance like all little kids. And so I was re-enrolled in that. Uh, I ultimately took a lot of ice skating classes and skated in shows. I even was a sub-cheerleader in, in high school for my brother's school, CBA. Um, I made a miraculous recovery, but I, I feel that the care that I received at Upstate initially and over time through my physicians and because of the love and support I had from my family and from my neighborhood made an incredible difference for me. Some kids were shunned, but no one was shunned in our neighborhood. Yeah, you said some kids were shunned. Class. Now, this was going on throughout the country. This wasn't just hitting DeWitt, New York, obviously. Throughout the world. Yes. Right. So the kids in, in DeWitt were not shunned, but children and young adults in general were oftentimes shunned not only in the United States, but throughout the whole world. Polio was something that was hitting hard throughout the developed world in particular. Today, it's in the developing world, but back then, it was the developed world that was really being hammered. Uh, the United States had more cases than any other country in the world, but actually the highest per capita incidence took place in 1953, our year in Canada. Wow. So we were all being hammered all over the world. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with polio survivor Janice Flood Nichols. We're talking about her bout with polio and beyond it. So, Janice, during that time, you said it was 53. You were saying it was Late just... Late 1953. Right. 
just before the trials began for the first polio vaccine. Tell us about what you remember about that time in terms of the vaccine coming out. Were you vaccinated following your bout with polio, for example? Okay. In April of 1954, there were trials that took place throughout the country in Canada and also in Finland. Just under 2 million children in primarily in first, second, and third grade, we were the kids who were most susceptible to the virus, were vaccinated or got a placebo and then had to actually receive the polio vaccine. Um, decisions to let kids be in the trial were made on a, a school district level. And in DeWitt, New York, because everyone remembered the, the epidemic uh, that took place just months before, 89% of the parents agreed to let their children be in the trial, either receiving the vaccine, a placebo, or as a control group. It was the first big double-blind study that had ever been done, and to this day, it remains the largest vaccine trial in the history of the world. Now, this I was, for- was allowed... Sorry, this was for the Salk vaccine, the first vaccine. Yes, the Salk vaccine, yep. And that's actually a, a more refined version of that vaccine is the vaccine that children in our country get today mm-hmm. and will ultimately be given to children all over the world. Um, I actually was allowed to be in the trial. I don't think today they would have allowed it because they know more about uh studies, vaccine studies today, and they would not have wanted a child who had a natural immunity to one of the three viral types to probably be in the study. But they didn't know as much back then. And the other thing is I don't think the school district would have denied my parents. They had one child die. They didn't know if I was going to make it at first. My mom suffered a miscarriage, and people just couldn't say no to that. Of course. I was fortunate that I received the vaccine So I didn't end up having to come back and get three more shots in the fall. So I was actually getting the vaccine. I needed it because there are three viral types for polio. I would only have natural natural immunity to the one type that I had. So I needed the vaccine just as much as other kids needed it. Did you experience, I mean, what what was the feeling during that whole time, both before the vaccine became available and once it became available in terms of just people's um, sense of safety, you know, with regard to polio? People were terrified of polio. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Frankie and I were little, so we didn't understand all the fears that our parents and and our, our friends' parents had and relatives. But there were a lot of restrictions. We were not allowed to swim in a public pool. Uh, people thought that if you swim, swam in a public pool, you would contract polio for sure. We weren't allowed to go to large gatherings. Some kids weren't even allowed to go to church, especially during the summer months when sometimes polio was more prevalent. Um, they, they were spraying DDT in parts of the country where there were bad epidemics. Schools were closed. Businesses were closed. People were terrified because you could literally have a perfectly healthy child or young adult fine one day and perhaps dead or paralyzed by the next day. Like I mentioned earlier, my twin was dead within 61 hours of being admitted to the hospital. So it was a terrifying time. Yeah. And once the vaccine came about and there was a sense that we could prevent it, did you have some sense um, in your community or in the environment at large in terms of a sense of relief? 
or, you know, a sense of perhaps ex exhilaration at the fact that perhaps we could prevent this from happening? Um, I think at that point, you know, our parents had just been through World War II. They really believed in the power of science and the power of medicine, very different than the skepticism that, that unfortunate, unfortunately some people have today. Especially so about believe, vaccines. Right, right. Um, it's a small group of people, but they're very, very verbal and causing real issues and confusion for many young parents. But I think my parents felt that, that we would ultimately be able to eradicate the disease. It's taken a long, long time, but we're almost there. Yeah. Uh, today, we only have 14 cases worldwide uh, during 2016. It so is, we're going to get there. We are, and it's very exciting to see. Um, right now, I, I just want to ask you, we, we don't have a lot of time left. You are currently, do you do experience some post-polio syndrome, you know, a post-polio symptoms. Are they uh, troublesome to you? Just tell us briefly about those. I call them more annoyance than anything else at my point. I'm very lucky. There are people literally back on respirators and in wheelchairs. I'm still going under my own steam. Mm -hmm. I pay a great deal of attention to what I should and should not do in terms of post-polio. Uh, it, it's kind of a weird situation because if you overtax your muscles, you can sometimes go backwards uh, faster. And, and have more problems. So I pay a lot of attention to making sure that I stay active but not overtaxing myself to a mm -hmm. point where I end up in a wheelchair. I don't know what the future is going to hold for me. But right now I'm walking under my own steam. I have kind of a, a dull pain in my arms and legs all the time. But I take an aspirin a day, and that just kind of takes the edge off of it. Um, I've lost enormous strength in my hands as well as my legs, but I, I'm a swanky kid. And, and how old are you now? I will be 69 on June 28th. Wonderful. And um, I just, I guess, I just want to keep going and do as much as I can. I'm very thankful for my recovery. I'm a very, very lucky woman, and I have to use my fortune to encourage people to vaccinate their kids, not only against uh, polio, but against all vaccine-preventable diseases. I think that's... And I'm also very thankful to Upstate because if I had received care in a place that wasn't up on the latest techniques, I don't know if I would have the good fortune that I have today. Well, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story, sharing your perspective, and clearly um, your advocacy for, you know, uh, to have vaccines available to people who need them, and as you said, for vaccine-preventable diseases is, is crucially important today. I want to thank you once again for joining us. My guest has been polio survivor and polio eradication advocate Janice Flood-Nichols. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. Go ahead, make my day, or our elevator speech. Well, folks, you know the idea in business of an elevator speech, a clear, hopefully memorable elevator trip length description of your business for prospective customers? Well, the other day, I'm getting on the elevator to my office. Minding my own business, wheeling my trusty two-wheeler in, 
lights flashing in my helmet, goggles, see me, don't run me over in your car, yellow jacket, <laughs> those funky padded bike shorts, gloves, and my sneaks. A woman gets on too. I ask, what floor you going to? And I push our respective buttons and commence checking out that very interesting elevator door closing, ker-clunk. Doesn't my fellow passenger say, are you Dr. O'Neill on that local TV show? Yeah, that's me. She goes on. Nice show. The piece I really liked was when you walked around downtown Armory Square and said hello to people walking by, and some of them just lit up and said hello back. I felt myself lighting up, and I thought, of course, that's what she's doing right now, saying hello and adding something to it, appreciation. And she lit up, smiling too, and went on. Thanks for doing the show. I love what you're doing there and on Upstate's Health Link on Air radio show, too. And she's beaming at me and me at her. You're welcome. So glad you like them. I felt terrific knowing what I do makes a positive difference for someone. Whoosh. The door opens. Bye. Bye. Kerklunk. Looking at that closing door, I realized... That was a different kind of elevator speech for the business of my life and hers and all of ours, thanking other people for how they make our lives better. If you will, that elevates us all. <laughs> I know she really made my day. I'm Dr. Rich, Elevator Man O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. A Wikipedian in residence gives us the lowdown on getting the most reliable health and medical information online today. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Thanks so much for coming in, Lane. Thank you so much, Linda. So help us understand, let's begin by helping us understand exactly what is Wikipedia. Wikipedia is a free online encyclopedia that anyone can edit. When I say that anyone can edit, what I mean is that anyone who has information to contribute to the encyclopedia can go to the website. At any given article in the encyclopedia, there's an edit button at the top of the page. A person can click that. Uh, a text box comes up, like a word processor, and they can change any of the information or text within the article. But why was this developed? I mean, what was the, the, the kind of concept behind this? I mean, does it represent some kind of a social movement? Tell us a little bit more about it. There is a bit of a social movement behind Wikipedia. So there is a Wikipedia community. This is the group of people, volunteers, who uh, are developing the encyclopedia. They meet together in the Wikipedia project and discuss how information can be delivered to people. When Wikipedia was founded, the founder said that uh, he wanted the Wikipedia community to imagine a world in which every single person 
has access to the sum of all human knowledge mm. and said, this is what we're going to do together. That's quite a large mission. <laughs> it, it was ambitious and it was a crazy idea at the time and it's still, uh, it's still a very ambitious idea. It's not just about having the best possible information in Engl English language, it's actually about translating it into everyone's uh, native language so that everyone can access it no matter where they are in the world. So it's really a global initiative in a sense to That's share the best information Absolutely. That we have in uh, any in any given field. Uh, any any culture, any language, anywhere in the world that has people who use the internet, they also have access to Wikipedia, and there's Wikipedians in those countries as well. So, what does it mean to be a Wikipedian in residence? What exactly is that? Sure. So, first, I'm a, I'm a Wikipedian. Uh, I've volunteered for Wikipedia for for many years, and what that means is I'm an encyclopedia editor. If it comes to happen that there's a particular organization that decides they'd like to distribute or disseminate their information through Wikipedia, then they might hire a staff Wikipedian, and that person is usually called a Wikipedian in residence. A Wikipedian in residence is a liaison between that organization and the Wikipedia community. And in this case, that's Consumer Reports. You represent them or their interests in some ways. Uh, well. Here's how it goes. I represent Consumer Reports on Wikipedia. Uh, I represent Wikipedia to Consumer Reports. It goes both ways. Interesting. So how did you become a Wikipedian? I was doing... Or what motivated you? Let's, let's start with that. Sure. Well, I, I guess I could say that I had, uh, for, for different, different reasons, professional and personal, I wanted to communicate health information. And I tried everything that I could. I, I set up blogs. I tried to talk with news organizations. And what I had to, the information that I had to share was rather conservative. It was right out of the medical journals. But I felt like this information that everybody ought to have access to is not available anywhere that I can find on the web. How can I publish this information? After trying uh, a lot of websites, so different kinds of social media, setting up websites, uh, I came to realize that Wikipedia had already attracted an audience that I thought would be desirable to reach. And because of the audience that was already going to Wikipedia, I decided to make the compromises that I needed to make to be able to publish on Wikipedia. And the biggest compromise that a person has to make is that a lot of branding is lost when anyone uh, contributes their information well, to Wikipedia. Well, you do it anonymously in a sense, right? It's, it's pseudo-anonymously. So there's not uh, author, cre author credit is possible to see within Wikipedia, but it's certainly not prominent. Someone would have to actually request to see who is the list of editors to this article. Uh, the focus in Wikipedia is on distributing the information that the reader is trying to get, not on propagating a brand. So it's interesting. So your motivation really stemmed more from your interest in health and medical information than in this kind of um, philosophy of wanting to be a part of this kind of dissemination of information. Absolutely. But if I did have to point to a philosophy that influenced Wikipedia, there's an open access movement. And I would say the values of the open access movement or the open content movement, open educational movement, heavily influenced the development of Wikipedia. So how long have you been, had you been doing this? Or how long have you been doing this, I guess? You said you've been a Wikipedian before you got involved with Consumer Reports. Mm -hmm. And I want to get a little bit more illumination on what that relationship is, actually. There's different things that I could say about this. Wikipedia was founded in 2001. It just had its 15th birthday. A lot of people don't realize how much time has passed and how long Wikipedia has been in the world. I actually edited Wikipedia uh, for the first time in 2004. Wow. Like many people who edit Wikipedia for the first time, I, I didn't get it. 
and I had a long relationship with Wikipedia before I actually understood what it means to edit Wikipedia and, and what the what the community guidelines and rules are. Explain that. Uh, well, uh, if I were to explain the fundamental rule of Wikipedia, and this is something that, that many people don't get, uh, it's not... When, when the truth is, is presented on Wikipedia, it's supposed to be a reflection of the best available published sources that anyone can find. So you need to have citations and all of that. Heavy citations. So uh, Wikipedia requests that after every sentence or every fact that's presented, there should be a citation to the most reliable, trusted source that anyone's been able to find. And that way, if anyone reads a sentence on Wikipedia and they want to verify it, they should be able to follow the references, go to the original authority, and verify that the content presented in Wikipedia is accurate. Quite understandable, because when you think that you open up a platform like that for a dissemination of information worldwide, and someone might have a bias, a bent, or some even nefarious motivation, if, it, there's, if it's unfounded, there's no foundation to it, it could do more damage than good. That's right. And so when we judge the merit of contributions to Wikipedia, merit is not judged by the person who contributed the information. So we, we don't give any uh, particular credit to authority or rank or hierarchy. Uh, what we judge is the quality of the source being cited and the extent to which information in Wikipedia is a reflection of that source. So getting back to that point, let's, I want to get, there's so many questions that I'd like to ask you, and I hope we don't run out of time. But this idea of, well, first of all, when you work for and with Consumer Reports, tell me about that role real quick. Sure. So Consumer Reports, it's a nonprofit consumer and media organization. Consumer Reports was interested. They, they had a health outreach campaign, an informational campaign. It was called Choosing Wisely. And in this campaign, there were health messages that they wanted to share about un unnecessary health care and uh, making sure that doctors and patients talk together about the care that patients are getting. But again, with no bias except to share, uh, to illuminate the subject. There's, there's a bias in everything. And okay. the, the bias in this case was to present conservative information from the academic journals, medical journals, especially systematic reviews and review articles. Uh, a lot of the information from this campaign actually came from Cochrane, which is a very conservative journal, pre presents, um, presents standard information. So the, in, in this health campaign, and this is a model for what anyone else can do, there were a series of health messages, and each of those health messages was paired to a citation in the medical journals. And so Consumer Reports had a goal of distributing this health information to as many people as possible, and they decided that since many people were going to Wikipedia to seek health information, if they were to put the information in from this health campaign into Wikipedia... As opposed to just publishing it in their own magazine. Exactly. And then, so th that can happen too, but the idea is, uh, considering the time commitment that it takes to put, put things in Wikipedia, it's efficient to also share your information there and, and reach Wikipedia's audience in addition to whatever whatever else your organization might do. Hold that thought a minute. If yes, you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm Linda Cohen along with Wikipedian in Residence for Consumer Reports, Lane Raspberry. And we're talking about the reliability of health and medical information in this very popular site. Now, let's get to it before we, before we lose any opportunity. How reliable, then, is the information in Wikipedia when it comes to health and medical issues? I know you can't speak to the larger concern beyond that. 
It's a difficult question to answer directly. And what I, what I could say is that there's a certain amount of academic research on the topic. Uh, people have given their opinions about the reliability of Wikipedia, but uh, Wikipedia is in flux, the internet is in flux, and it's difficult to uh, assess, even with all the academic literature on the subject, how reliable Wikipedia is. What uh, My personal feeling is that Wikipedia is comparable in quality to whatever else anyone might find on the internet. Some of the competitors for health information include websites like WebMD, NIH, uh, the National Health Service. Mayo Clinic. Mayo Clinic, yes. PubMed. Uh, and to some extent, e each one of these is uh, targeting a different audience. So uh, I think it's worthwhile to consider what is the spectrum of information in any given topic. And just because one website might be good for a certain kind of health information, say medical conditions or diseases, another one of these websites might be appropriate for, say, uh, drugs or therapies. And then also there's the level of um, literacy or the scope of the information. So some people might want more technical information and some people might want more nuanced information on particular topics. Absolutely, but the question is the credibility. In other words, in reliability of the information, I guess. I, I understand what you're mm -hmm. saying. It's like, you know, everyone likes multiple flavors. It's not vanilla yes. for all. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the facts, mm -hmm. are you, do you feel fairly confident that if someone were to read Wikipedia on a particular health issue, they would be getting accurate and credible information? I'm confident. I, I personally am confident that people get quality information from Wikipedia. I could say that there's a quality control process on Wikipedia also. Whenever anyone adds information to Wikipedia, again, there's that Wikipedia community behind things. And, uh, every and are they real people? Real, real people from all over the world. And they meet in cyberspace? I mean, how does that work? Well, look, we, we, we have in-person conferences as well. So okay. there's, there's a Wikipedia community, a Wikimedia movement. People uh, have, have personal relationships. We, we meet by email, phone, Skype, in, in any way that you can imagine people okay. collaborating. And then go on. So how do they verify information? Well, when somebody, when somebody adds content anywhere on Wikipedia, there's different le levels of verification. The first level of verification is that there's a Wikipedia patrol, Wikipedia police, they give, they give things a glance. And the first thing that gets checked is if someone adds information, is that information followed by a citation to a source? So that's one level of check. And then another, le another level of check might be, uh, so someone might identify someone's added health information. Perhaps the person who's reviewed that doesn't have expertise in health, and so it gets escalated. Can somebody check to see, is this a reliable source of information in the context of health? So someone with more expertise. And then if more expertise is required, the submission and on gets... And on and on. And on and on, So yes. the bottom line is there really are layers of um, evaluation going on and, and analysis to make sure that the information is largely accurate. What impact do you think the, the uh, Wikipedia... We're focusing now, I think, to say in the global sense, it's probably had an enormous impact on information. I think people aren't selling encyclopedias anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, but in terms of health and medical information, what do you think the impact has been? So you just asked me about quality. And to some extent, there's, uh, there's two aspects that one should consider if they're talking about impact. One is the, the quality of information, and the other is the access to information. There's some research that suggests, and many people who believe, that Wikipedia is the world's most consulted source of health information. That's a bit awkward. It was never intended at the founding of Wikipedia, but since no one else has stepped up to take, take this role, and then Wikipedia has said, we're going to cover all information to the, to the best of our ability to do so, it's happened that uh, 
search engines, such as Google, uh, Bing, DuckDuckGo, have said that if there's a Wikipedia article covering a, a particular topic, then if someone types in terms into the search engine looking for that topic, then preferentially the search engine will serve a Wikipedia article. And so one might say that the audience that uses Wikipedia is not people who go to Wikipedia looking for information, but rather Wikipedia gets the audience of people who are looking for information online. So to the preferentially, yes, to the to the extent that online internet search matters, the health information on Wikipedia matters. Interesting. Mm. Very briefly, because I don't want to run out of time, you're here today to, to show people here at Upstate Medical University how to get involved, how to edit themselves. Is that correct? Is it complicated to do? Uh, I've told you the most complicated part. When someone adds a sentence to Wikipedia, it should be followed by a citation to a reliable source. So you have to do research to do this properly. That's right. Uh, we, we need expertise. The technical process of editing Wikipedia isn't so difficult. What's much more scarce is having people with expertise in a given field and who know the reliable sources to cite uh, to get them to either add information or perhaps for them to uh, encourage their social circle to add information. And by social circle, one of the most common instances is having a professor in a classroom, for example, say, instead of the students writing doing research and writing a report for the professor, could the students perhaps add a few sentences to Wikipedia covering whatever the, the class is And that's being studying. done more and more, I guess. The, you know, I, I feel so frustrated because I have so many more questions, but I'm sad to say we have run out of time. I want to thank you so very much for coming in and illuminating this very interesting topic to us. I mean, I think anyone who uses the Internet daily runs into Wikipedia um, information, and it's really helpful to hear kind of the backstory here. So thank you so very much. My guest has been Lane Raspberry. He's the Wikipedian in residence for Consumer Reports. Thanks again, and I hope you have a, a great experience here at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Jack Hopper is the poet laureate of Tompkins County. He sent us a beautiful portrait of his mother that not only brings her to life, but illustrates some of the good parts of aging. Here is The First 100 Years. The empty wheelchair faces the door like a dog that wants out. My mother's gone to hospice where people pass away. But not gently, she, too feisty with her tiny fists, and most her silence, a wall raised against that one unwanted visitor. Long before her last hurrah, how many dances with Big Jack, her husband who would die too young? Their parties rocked the house and kept us kids entranced behind the upstairs banister. In the mornings came the calm of Claire de Lune, played on her grand, as outside air fanned away the clouds of nicotine. Not till her last decade did her quick step falter. The only walker she preferred was Johnny on the rocks. The legacy of smoking plastic lines of oxygen coiling, slithering on the floor around her, costing falls and fractures. Finally, 
liver cancer that no splint could fix, entered without bothering to knock. And in the mix of nurses, friends, relations, came the ambulance, weeks later, driven by a handsome paramedic who caught her eye, his wink. With such feints, she kept at bay her aging enemy till the last day, then turning to the wall, passed through. for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening.